Well, good morning, and uh, let me add my welcome uh, to that uh, of Rob's. Nice to see you. I, I can see that you've managed to swim your way uh, this morning. Two readings. The first, uh, Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. And if you're using the church Bibles, that is found on page 609. Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. And now our passage, uh, as we continue to look in the book of Acts, Acts Acts chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 11 to 31. And again, if you're using the church Bibles, this is on page 937, Acts chapter 28. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Rhegium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puptoli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers and sisters there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and the Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because of the Jews and their, and their objections, I was compelled 
to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, and for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing amongst themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. This people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we came to Rome, writes Luke in chapter 28, verse 14 of our passage. Impressive and captivating. Rome was the heart of the empire. Numerous languages, ethnic groups, Races mixed in the streets, the markets, theaters, and bathhouses. The famous buildings, the chariot races, the palaces of Caesar, and the forum. All of these would have attracted the visitors' eyes. The buzz of the city's commerce, well, it was almost palpable. Pax Romana had its epicenter in Rome. But not all was glimmering. Immorality and inhumanity seethed. The Roman Republic lasted for some 500 years, but eventually collapsed in 27 BC due to brutality, civil war, and assassination. Now Caesars ruled as emperor, king. The Senate, well, it was full of intrigue, plots, and unrest. But... In this majestic and also dark society, Christian churches, Christian churches arose, most likely in the mid-50s A.D. We're not sure who brought the gospel to Rome. Uh, earlier in chapter 2 of the book of Acts, Luke tells us that there were visitors from Rome on that unique Pentecost day. Uh, did they return to Rome preaching the gospel? What we do know is that sometime between 55 and 57 AD, the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of churches in the city of Rome, his letter to the Romans. And in that letter, he writes of his longing to spend time with these Christians before going on to Spain. 
And now in the spring of 60 AD, Paul and his companions, including Luke, arrived in Rome. And Paul met the church or churches there. And so should we. We should meet the church in Rome. Because there is something for us to consider about these churches in Rome and Paul's arrival in Rome. And what Luke gives us, I think, is very timely for us here at Edinburgh North. A time when we ask, well, who are we? What are we to be about? And how should we minister in this moment in time? Well, then, three observations, if I continue this sort of overview, a bird's eye view of this church in Rome. Here's the first of three. First, the storms of human events cannot stop the Lord Jesus from growing his church. And there were storms of every kind. In our passage, verses 11 to 13, if you let your eyes glance down over what Luke is narrating, well, let's back up a little bit. And to say that Paul had a hard life is an extraordinary understatement. Beatings, plots against him, riots, imprisonments, brought before Roman officials, and a shipwreck more than once. Yet nothing, it seems, deterred him from wanting to reach Rome. Not only did he desire to visit the church there, and if you were to have time to look at Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 8 to 15, he talks about his intense desire to minister amongst them and to receive from them. But he was actually unwavering in his certainty that the Lord Jesus called him to go to Rome. Just turn back to Acts chapter 23 and verse 11. Because Paul had received this vision, this dream, Acts 23 verse 11, in the midst of of difficulty, the following night the Lord stood by Paul and said, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. But as Luke uh, tells us now in our passage of the experiences of these storms of events, and and, and Paul actually recounts to his Jewish brothers uh, in verses 17 to 20 of of our passage what he had gone through, some of it you could reasonably say, I'm not sure Paul's going to make it. It looks like it's hanging in the balance. And this is particularly the case as Luke slows down the narrative in chapters 27 and 28, giving us incredible detailed information about the storm and the shipwreck. It's like a hyper-focus. And you want to ask yourself, why? Why all this stuff? Well, um, John Stott, the name of which you might be familiar, suggests that he's slowing down for a purpose, and it's helpful to appreciate how in the ancient world women and men thought about storms at sea. Often they were suggestions of supernatural opposition. So Luke may well then be showing us, you the reader, of the terrifying demonic opposition that Paul is experiencing. That's why he's slowing down the narrative. Evil is trying to stop him from testifying before the emperor. Yet it's precisely in these storms of events that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is unstoppable in what he wants to do. Namely, call and build up his church, his people. 
Earlier in chapter 25, uh, one of the Roman officials, Festus, declared to Paul, you have appealed to Caesar, which was his right. Uh, Paul was a Roman citizen from birth. Festus says, you have appealed to Caesar, well then to Caesar you will go. Chapter 25, verse 12. But it wasn't Roman jurisprudence as it was the sovereign hand of the Lord. Luke stresses that. Chapter 27, verses 23 to 24. Paul's desired goal was to go to Rome. His undesired condition, however, was as a prisoner. But again, as John Stott also points out, as a prisoner, in Paul's two-year captivity, Paul's witness was actually expanded and enriched and authenticated, so much so that if you were to look in his letter to the church in Philippi, the Philippians, Paul can declare that the whole entire Roman guard (laughs) has heard about the gospel of the Lord Jesus, which they may not have heard about had he not been in prison. And now in our passage, verses 14 to 16, we can almost miss it because of Luke's brevity. There were already brothers and sisters. And by the way, it's it's sisters as well. It's not just brothers. And again, we're, we're not sure who these brothers and sisters, which is a Christian term, by the way, He'll later use the word brothers for Jewish people. We're not sure who, who and, by, and when the gospel came necessarily to Rome. Again, we know that Paul knew of the church there. And in chapter 16 of his letter to the Romans, he lists an impressive membership role, if you will, of Christians in Rome. And so as Paul arrived and met some of these people from the churches in Rome, look what Luke Uh, tells us, chapter 28, verse 15, at the sight of these men and women, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Luke is phenomenally brief here. We want more information about these believers and how they heard of Paul's coming. We want to know the history of the early days of the church in Rome. And it seems that Luke has not provided us with any information. Or has he? Look more closely at verses 17 to 29. What Luke is compressing in his narrative is that, well, there's a pattern that we've already seen over and over in the book of Acts. Luke doesn't need to spell it out anymore with any more detail than he's already done throughout his second volume. What is this pattern? Well, the gospel may well sadly be rejected by the religious leaders and teachers, But that rejection is exactly what Isaiah predicted and what Jesus predicted. At the same time, however, do you spot what's going on in in Paul's summation of, of, of his ministry here? At the same time, others do receive the gospel. God's sovereign and gracious salvation is unstoppable. The reason there is a church in Rome, the most unlikely place you would imagine, because it is the heart of the Roman Empire, the reason there is a church is because the risen Lord Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. That's the reason why there's a church. And this glorious reality, well, that changes everything. So here's that first observation. The storms of human events cannot stop the Lord Jesus growing his church. Let's keep going, though, because second observation as we come to the end of the book of Acts is this. 
the church of Jesus both subverts and answers the longings of Rome. It both subverts and answers the longings of people in Rome. I'm a little embarrassed to tell you this story, but uh, I will for, for a reason. Uh, a few years ago in the church where I was ministering uh, down in Kent, a visitor came up to me after Sunday service, and she told me, you know, listening to you preach this morning, I thought how similar you are to my pastor in Manhattan, Tim Keller. I replied with a very modest, thank you. But inwardly, I was, yes, yes. At last, someone recognizes me for who I really am. <laughs> and she must have read my mind, because she said, no, 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 no. I only mean you're both bald, your accents are similar, sort of-ish, and both of you go on and on and on about Lewis and Tolkien. I was deflated. Then I said to her, what's wrong with Tolkien and Lewis? Because look, I mean, Tolkien and Lewis illustrate what that word subvert can mean positively. I mean, Aslan's substituting himself at the stone table for guilty Edmund pleased the white witch because the law demanded that the guilty party be killed because of treason. What she didn't reckon on, however, was how Aslan's, remember, deeper magic would subvert her wickedness as he would rise from the dead. It was counterintuitive. So too, I'm getting carried away now, uh, when the Council of Rivendell agreed to send Frodo and Sam into the fires of Mordor to destroy the one ring, to destroy the ring. Well, that's completely subversive and counterintuitive. And the size and the weakness of the hobbits subvert any preconceived notion of strength and valor and greatness to actually show exceptional character and nobility. The gospel of the Lord Jesus faithfully proclaimed even in weakness as a prisoner, even by a small, tiny church in Edinburgh, subverts the world's preconceptions. And in so doing, I don't know if you thought about this, in so doing, it actually satisfies the longings of the world. How does it do so? In two short verses, look down with me at verse 30, and then at verse 31, in two short verses, verses we could easily miss, Luke sums up what he's been explaining through his gospel and in the book of Acts. And only when we keep in mind his glorious two volumes do you see the wonders of these two tiny verses. Verse 30, a welcome, a welcome. This is what the gospel offers men and women. A welcome to all. Jesus did this. Paul did this. In his humility and lowliness, Jesus welcomes the broken, the troubled, and the sinner. Paul, a prisoner under house arrest, having to pay for it himself, welcomed all who came to see him. The welcome subverts all expectations. I mean, it was easy. 
very easy to write off Jesus as simply a poor Galilean rebel, a rabbi. It was easy to miss his welcome because he associated with the marginal people of society, not the religious elite. It's easy to miss Paul's welcome because he did not outwardly impress according to Roman standards. Rome was not a welcoming place. Paul was. But the welcome Jesus extends, the welcome Paul offers, is what women and men deeply, deeply long for inside. This gospel welcomes. Yes, it challenges. Yes, it disturbs. But it always embraces with kindness and compassion. To be welcomed like this subverts every preconceived notion of authority, of power, of religion, of position. Now, we have to repent of all the wrong, idolatrous and rebellious alternatives. Yes, but look at the welcome. Because simultaneously, this welcome actually reaches our deepest longings. Our longings which we may have suppressed because we've been hurt in the past or disappointed or actually, though we would never tell anyone in this room, we're actually afraid. This is what Augustine in his autobiographical confessions, and and Augustine knew well 400 years later, he still knew a lot about Roman society. He wrote, you, he's now speaking in prayer to God, you made us for yourself and our heart is restless until we find our rest in you. Rome was full of that kind of restlessness. Edinburgh is shot through with this kind of restlessness. Augustine goes on to say that our hearts are restless in the pursuit of what we deeply long for. We long for, we long for love. We, we desire acceptance. Will someone please just accept me for who I am? We cherish beauty, though it's sullied in our world around us. We want justice, quite rightly. Did you hear how Rob prayed? That's right to pray for justice. But we end up looking... We end up looking for those right things in all the wrong places. We look for solutions which will ultimately, sadly, just disappoint us. And the gospel says to us, no, you've got got the right aspirations, but you're looking for something that, that can only come from me, says Jesus. So he subverts what we're looking at to satisfy what we're wanting from him. And now look at verse 31. In one short verse, Luke sums up what the the apostles preached, what his gospel was writing about, what the book of Acts and all those lengthy sermons, what they're all about, he does it in one verse. The kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ. A kingdom of supreme authority, but with a king in marked contrast to Caesar. A kingdom of supreme authority, yes, but a kingdom that is characterized by a subversive love. This kingdom overturns violence and abuse. This kingdom puts all to right. This kingdom says to Rome, 
No, here is justice. Here is righteousness. Here is nobility. Here is virtue. Caesar is not Lord. No political system, no political ruler, no nation is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar is not Lord. He's not powerful enough. Jesus is. Caesar isn't wise enough. Jesus is. Caesar doesn't care for his people enough. Jesus does. Jesus is Lord. Paul wrote in his epistle to the Romans that Jesus is the Lord of all nations, all times in history, and all existence. And while this proclamation, yes, disturbs and unsettles because it calls women and men to repent, it always brings hope to the ones that listen. Death did not defeat Jesus. And in him, death will not defeat us. Evil did not triumph over Jesus. And in him, we actually don't need to fear, even in fearful times. I guess what I'm trying to say, imagine. Imagine a champion for you who knows full well the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, as uh, Shakespeare Hamlet put it. Imagine him. Imagine a warrior chieftain for you who calmly, calmly faces your greatest threat, your greatest enemy, while never, ever minimizing your tears and heartache. Some in Rome did more than simply imagine that. They worshipped with adoration and changed lives. Thirdly and finally, the church of Jesus has not stopped with Rome. It hasn't hasn't ended there. Undoubtedly, the history of Christianity and the Roman Empire is very, very complicated. It was messy. Some Romans were suspicious. Are Christians just a Jewish sect or even worse? Were Christians simply undermining assumed values and practices? Most historians, not all, but most historians suggest the early Christians were actually very countercultural. This is important. Christians in the Roman Empire were not conservative. Hardly conservative. They were counterculture. Women were treated as equals to men. Slaves, slaves were accorded dignity. And the poor and marginalized were aided and included, as well as prominent people. And yes, the ensuing years and decades, there were episodes of attack, and there were outright moments of persecution. But eventually, by the fourth century, Christianity was the official state religion of the empire under Constantine. We may say that's probably not a good thing, but it happened for messy reasons. It was not a smooth conclusion. In fact, when the Roman Empire collapsed in 476, Christians were actually blamed for it. It was argued that uh, the empire must have offended their earlier pagan gods by accepting Christianity, and that's why Rome collapsed. And for those of you who are interested, that's why Augustine wrote his his voluminous book, uh, City of God, a robust Christian counter-argument that it's Christianity that breaks down society. He argues the opposite. It satisfies the very longings of every society. 
Now, of course, Luke didn't live to see any of that. Tradition holds that Luke died around uh, the year 84. The point, however, and this, is, this really should make us sit up, look at the brevity with which he concludes his second volume. It actually le- kind of leaves us hanging. Luke, do you notice this, doesn't give us any of the contents of the sermons that Paul preached in Rome. We don't, we don't, we don't hear anything. We don't, we don't even know who came to see him. Importantly, Luke doesn't tell us whether Paul ever testified before Nero, the very thing in chapter 23, verse 11, that Jesus told Paul he will do. Luke doesn't mention it. Uh, Tradition has it that Paul did appear before Nero, and tradition holds that Paul was eventually released from his house arrest, but then later re-imprisoned, and then eventually beheaded in Rome sometime around 64, 65 A.D., Luke doesn't tell us any of that. But his brevity may actually serve his point. There is nothing more that Luke needs to tell us. He's told us everything we need to know. We know all we need to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and by the Holy Spirit, he continues to save people in the world and bring them into his church. Luke tells us there is really no Christianity that's separate from the church. The church and a Christian life, they're all part and parcel. And as that gospel is faithfully proclaimed by ordinary men and women in the church, Jesus continues by his spirit to rescue other men and women. We may not fully understand that. And we can say, as our confession puts it, that the church is a body of believers united to Christ by the spirit. The church is both universal uh, throughout time, but it's also very local. And of course, the church is very imperfect. We sense this as we certainly read the letter to the Romans. Again, Augustine observed that at any point in history, the church visible also has within it chaff or tares. Those who, as Augustine put it, who are either hypocrites or who are not repenting believers in Christ. But this is the thing. On the final day, King Jesus will bring home his church, his perfect bride, spotless and blameless. He is is more determined to, to achieve that than you and I are in our wildest longings and aspirations and prayer. And that's where we come in to the story. It's into this story, our lives, this church, us, We've been included. I suppose other people in Edinburgh, maybe even other churches in Edinburgh, would kind of look at us and say, boy, what a handful of people you guys are. But here, like I don't get paid to say any of this. (laughs) That's a hint. No, I don't. Um, (laughs) But in the eyes of King Jesus, oh, it's far, far better than that. He is including even us in what he is doing in this world. Look, in this mini-series, which comes to an end, I, I, yes, I admit, I have, I have raised some questions about us at ENC, and you may want to go back and listen some time uh, to some of the earlier sermons. But guys, my, my questions were never, ever, ever intended to be so much of a challenge as they were aimed to kind of stir us up 
to press on, even in our current interim between pastors. I'm not sure what the best format, if there is a format, to, to discuss with one another those questions. But what I am sure of, and what I want to find a way to encourage you and say, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Um, you are part of something much bigger than you could ever imagine, and it's wonderful. Yes, it's hard work being involved in a, in a church today in Edinburgh, but there is a privilege and an excitement and a joy of being included and caught up in Christ's saving work in the world. Please don't lose sight of that. In your exhaustion or in your confusion, don't let go of what he's doing. Let's pray. O God of unchangeable power and light eternal, look favorably upon the body of your whole church and by your, your eternal providence accomplish the salvation of men and women that all the world may see and know that what has fallen has been lifted up and what was grown old has been made new and that all things are restored by him through whom they were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.